The sermon this morning will be constructed, will be built, will be found, will be discovered in the answers to the questions that many of you submitted. And here are the questions. I want to thank uh, all of you who submitted questions uh, for me to respond to. Uh, I want you to know that my advisory committee took all of those that had been submitted and, and selected 10, which I hope I will be able to get to uh, this morning, selected 10 for me to respond to. They put them in an order, too, and they asked me to follow that order, which I will be faithful to. And then they sent them to me uh, last night. You know, we're at a distance these days. So rather than having one of them Walk up, the idea, walk up the aisle and hand me a stack of cards, they sent me a file um, in an email, which I then printed out. And, and I tried not to look too carefully at the questions beforehand, but I must confess that I did sneak a peek this morning as I was printing them, just so that I would know the range of, the range of topics that that you hoped I would speak to. So let's begin. So here's the first question. I would love to learn about the origins of the essential term beloved community and its place in the evolution and history of the Unitarian Universalist Church. Beloved community. Well, most of you know that term was made popular by Dr. King, by Martin Luther King, Jr. What most of you probably do not know is that he was borrowing that term. He borrowed it from a minister named Josiah Royce, who was the, uh, the creator, the founder of a group called the Fellowship of Reconciliation back at the turn of the last century. And Royce coined the term to describe, to describe his take on what was then the emerging social gospel, a religious way of being in the world which was concerned not just or even primarily with individual salvation, but with the creation here on earth of what he called the beloved community. And Royce and then King following him and now Unitarian Universalists are content to leave that term a little vague, not to make it too concrete. Because as Unitarian Universalists, we believe that revelation is not sealed and that, that we have only begun to imagine justice and mercy and that more work, more need, more, more oppression, more, more harm that we do to one another will be revealed that will need to be addressed over time. So we are called only to address what we can see and helped and be helped to see by those on the margins. The term came into Unitarian Universalism really beginning in the 1990s and, and, the, and the 2000s. And I am actually proud to say that I had some role in that, particularly as UUA president, when I used the term frequently. But mine was not the only voice. And here at First Unitarian, I brought that term with me 
even though it was no stranger to this community. I brought that term with me and the, the phrase that we say most every week, that our mission is to nurture the individual spirit and together build the beloved community. That's a phrase that I introduced in my first year here, now some 10 years ago. It is a good and important phrase for us that can ground us in our religious work. There were several questions about the finances of the church. And I'm going to try to say a little bit about them. I, I would show you this, but the questions take up a full page of texts and text, and I'm not inclined to try to read all of them to you. But I thought I would, I would give you a flavor of them. Um, so here's, here's one. Please address the financial state of the church and how much congregants would need to contribute to fill the void in order to avoid staff layoffs. The questions were filled with concern for our staff. Would it be helpful? It would be helpful to know specifically what it would take financially to make up enough of our shortfall to maintain current staffing and program levels. That was the flavor of a lot of these questions. So let me give you a very brief review and encourage you to pay attention to those pieces of writing that will be coming out both now and in September as we begin our annual giving opportunity and as the Board of Trustees publishes financial documents. This is a good year to pay attention. Most of you know, I hope and remember, that First Unitarian Church received a PPP, a Payroll Protection Program loan from the federal government, which is forgivable uh, if we were able to sustain our staffing levels through the end of July which we were, and happily so. It provided a very important cushion as our income began to soften. We also have been blessed, is the only way to say it, by some very generous gifts for operating expenses from members of our community that have also provided an important cushion for us. And now, we're looking toward the new church year when we are going to continue to be at a distance. We're looking at the, at the income forecasts, and, and here is what we know. We know that thus far, largely thanks to these special gifts from individual congregants, our income has held up pretty well. But we also know because some of you have told us that you are having to cut your financial gifts to the church or even end them for this year because of the financial circumstances of you and or your family. And truth be told, I fully expect, I will be astounded if there are not more of the members of our community who find themselves in that position as the fall begins and the year unfolds. I expect to hear from more of you that you're going to have to cut your contribution or end it for this year. 
it is the reality that we face. So how do we deal with that? Some of you will remember that the budget that the church approved in May was put together before COVID. It was pre-COVID budget. And it already called for cuts, modest cuts, but cuts in staffing. It called for salary reductions for your ministers and for the senior staff. That's the budget that we are struggling to hold to. Here's what I'm gonna be asking you as we move into September and begin our opportunity for giving for the church. I'm gonna ask those of us who are in difficult situations not to be ashamed. I'm gonna ask those of us who are struggling financially to give what you can and to let us know if there are ways that we can help. I'm gonna ask those of us who can sustain our giving to the church to do that. That in and of itself in these days is a huge blessing. And for those of us who have not been financially impacted by the pandemic, for those of us who are doing pretty well and maybe even better than we were, I am gonna ask those of us who can to significantly increase our giving to the church. I think about it this way. If four of us, four families, increased our contribution by 25% each, that would cover one family that has to end their giving to the church this year. It will take four of us to make up for that one family. And my friends, I believe that this is something that we can do. If enough of us step up, I believe that our generosity can create a church and sustain a church that is grounded in abundance and not in scarcity. There was one more question about finances, and that was a question about those congregants who are truly struggling and how we might be able to reach out to help them. We uh, raised money for our emergency fund for members earlier in the year, and there is still money in that fund. And in the last round of calling, this is the third round of calling, we've made calls to each and every member of our community since COVID began three times. In the last round of calling, more of us told us that they needed help from that fund. And we've been able to provide that and to step up. I expect that we're going to need to do more of that as the fall progresses. And we will let you know when more money is needed for that fund. The third question, a universal multifaceted question is how it's described. What does it mean to be in community if we can't meet face-to-face -face in large numbers? How does the meaning of community change? What unexpected learning opportunities does quarantine offer? What have we learned from this time about community that we can leverage after it is safe to assemble again? 
a wonderful, wonderful question. Let me start by saying that everybody on this chancel, and I know everybody who is tuned in, wants to be back together in person. We all want that. We want to be in this sanctuary, those of us who are in Portland. We, um, we want that, and yet we have learned some important things during the time when we have had to stay at a distance. First, we've learned that our attendance, our viewership, the number of devices tuned in, has grown expansively since we went online only. That's true for many other particularly larger UU churches and other large churches that do their virtual worship well. We have done extraordinarily well. We've attracted more folks. We've attracted folks from a wider geography, from 30 states, several foreign countries, many, many, many in Oregon, but outside the Portland area. We've expanded our reach. It's very interesting. The other thing I want to note is that we've had extraordinary success with our online, we call it adult education. It's really faith formation and deepening. So the classes that we've offered for, for those um, with, uh, with queer and trans identities, but enormously popular. The, the programming that we've offered for, uh, for racial justice and, and uh, Black Lives Matter and, uh, and that whole, whole area, enormously popular and very important for this community. Our, our Wellspring, Tom was just telling me that the, that the registration for Wellspring is up dramatically uh, going into the fall. It's very strong. So one of the things that we've learned, not only is there a, a hunger for what we offer, but people are actually finding, willing to find or finding real meaning in creating community online. And for me, it's still a little strange to make community in that rectangle of the Zoom screen, but it is clearly being done. Community is being found. How will this change when we return to in-person worship? I think that's a huge and important question and I think we're not quite ready to answer it yet. You know, we're really only six months into this COVID, these COVID days. We're still on a high and steep learning curve. One of the things that I think is certain, however, is that as in so many parts of our life, whether it's work or shopping or in many parts of our lives, this pandemic has supercharged, has turbocharged a movement that was already underway toward life online and community online. How we will strike a balance between that online life and life in person when we can regather is something we're going to have to reflect on and probably experiment with and certainly pray over. Just remember that we all are looking forward to the day when we can gather again in person. 
and that when we can gather again in person, we will be gathering in a religious community that has been changed, at least somewhat, by the experience of being at a distance. These are wonderful questions. Ah, okay. So how can we best support our music program at current staffing levels? Many of us have offered to provide extra funding for this and other essential church functions. Should we wait until Celebration Sunday or pledge support now? It is my job to welcome generosity whenever it is expressed. But I hope that most of us, almost all of us, will point toward the opportunity to express our generosity, to, to, to give to this church in September, which we will be beginning on, on our on homecoming Sunday. So it's not that far away. That will be the time to express our generosity and, and make our commitments to this church. And I hope that we will make those commitments to the church rather than to one specific program or one specific staff group, because all of us participate in the ministry of this church. We're all a part of one whole. And to the extent, to the extent that we can all understand that and make our support for the large ministry that is First Unitarian, we will survive this time at a distance in better shape, more whole, and more healthy. I'm checking time. And I have time for a few more. I'm probably not going to make it through all 10. How are we supporting the Black Lives Matter movement? And what role should we play? Another excellent question. So I think uh, most of you are aware, if you're not, that uh, First Unitarian joined a lawsuit against the federal government uh, in response to the federal um, uh, stormtroopers that were present on the streets of Portland. That's one way that we are supporting the movement for black lives. Um, some of our folks have been down on the streets, quite a few of them, actually, at one time or another. And for those for whom that's a comfortable thing to do, that is one way to support the movement for black lives. We're making our offering this month for blue, Black Lives of Unitarian Universalism. That's the expression of the movement for black lives within our larger faith community. We're supporting that with our money this month. There are many ways that we support the movement for black lives. Coming out this week will be a statement from a new group of black indigenous and person of color faith leaders. It's called a Faith Leaders Council, in which I participate, which calls specifically for defunding the police. It calls specifically for doing what Portland and no other American city has been able to do over the course of the last decades, which is to end the occupation of communities of color and reallocate, reorganize our funding and our support 
to support thriving rather than merely control. This is a controversial stand for some, but one that I feel very strongly about. You all, through your networks, through your votes, can support that movement. Remember that Portland has known it's had issues with policing for decades now. And this is our opportunity for significant change. The other thing that I would say, particularly for those of you who identify as white, your role is not to, let me take, let me take a step back. Your most effective role may not be out on the streets. It may not be to go down or to zoom down to the council meetings. It may not be to take that kind of public and proactive stance, but each and every one of you is in conversations with your family and your friends, and you can help sustain the energy for the movement for black lives in your conversations, in your familial and your friendship groups. It has been a long time coming that I have had a sense of real opening of real possibility around race in this nation. It seems very important to me, and I hope to you, that we not miss this chance. I'm going to try for two more. I continue to be concerned, this question begins, that in our zeal to include voices we haven't always heard, we may be silencing others. How can we maintain our support for the free expression of disparate opinions and avoid developing a new orthodoxy? I would like to think that we can listen to views we disagree with, even find uncomfortable, and not feel threatened by them. In, this, in these days, when there is that opening I just talked about, that opening for real change, probably the most fundamental, or at least one of the most fundamental changes, is the process of centering the voices that have been kept silent and kept on the margins for too long centering those voices, centering the voices of black, indigenous, and persons of color, centering queer and trans voices, centering disabled voices, centering all those who have been kept on the margins. When we center those voices, it requires a new spiritual discipline for those who have been in the center for so long. A new spiritual discipline, I call it, because, because it, will feel, it will feel unaccustomed to not have those voices speak first, to not have those voices speak loudest, 
to not have those voices be the voices who are which are listened to most thoroughly, to not have those voices be the voices that control, that have the power. But I believe, I believe very deeply that centering those voices who have been kept on the margins is our most effective, most hopeful path toward beloved community. It will be bumpy, I know. But centering those voices does not mean silencing others. Centering those voices merely means making sure that they are heard first, that they, we, are at the table and not pushed out and disregarded. It has been, it has been 400 years when the voices of the majority culture have been centered. Is a generation of centering these other voices too much to ask? Is 10 years too much to ask? Is one year of listening to the voices on the margin too much to ask? I have to believe that the answer is no. And that we together will be a better people if we engage in the intentional discipline of structuring our discourse to center first those who have never been heard. I'm looking at some of these other questions that I wish I had time to answer. Just know that they will all be distributed to the senior staff. I distribute them to the Board of Trustees as well. They'll show up in my blogs through the course of the year, in other sermons, and in other writings that, that, uh, that, I'm, that, I, that I do in the course of this year. They're a rich source of focus for me. Here's the last one I want to try for. I have been struggling with this question all spring and summer. As is my nature and upbringing, I have been doing a lot of doing, focused on using my privilege to impact justice. But I sense the answer is deeper than that. Changing laws and policies only goes so far to rout the deeply embedded fear that is the core of racism and pretty much every problem plaguing humanity. Perhaps I can only change me with prayer and self-discipline and love. You know, as I, as I read that, I almost think that I could simply leave that as the concluding statement of this sermon. There's a process, though, that I'm called to to remind you of. It's, it's a process that came out of the, the discipline of, of liberation theology in, uh, in, in South America. And the process is action, reflection, action. This person talks about a lot of doing, focused on my privilege to impact injustice, and that's 
that's action. There is a needful time for reflection after that action. A needful time for reflection, for prayer, and a needful time for accountability as well. So that you alone are not processing your experience, so that you have the benefit of other ears and other eyes who look at, at your experience and hear it and reflect back to you things that you may not have seen or reflect back to you things that you may not value enough in what you did. And then out of that reflection to re-engage, it's action, reflection, and then re-engagement, more action. I believe, I believe it is in that process, that blending of action and reflection, that spiritual depth is practiced. It's not that it emerges, it's lived that spiritual depth is lived. And the practice of accountability is one where I believe we all, and I include myself in this, we all have more to learn from and be blessed by. Thank you so much for your questions and for this opportunity to offer some responses. Will you pray with me now? Spirit of life and of love, great mystery that welcomes our questions and tolerates even our awkward answers. In these days when there is so much loss and so much fear, may we discover that there is also reason to hope not hope that would paper over our losses, not hope found in simplistic answers to persistent problems, not hope that denies hard truths. May we find in our searching a hope grounded in possibility for what can be, a hope that grows out of our need for one another, a hope that is grounded in the love that we share. Let us hold one another in love and allow hope to grow out of the care that we show for each precious one of us. May we discover that though we may be down in the valley right now, there is a light burning to guide our journey home. May we open our eyes and our hearts and let love do what only love can do, guide our journey home. Amen.